So many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. of the box. Meet people through their music with Ash Bertabez on FBI. How good is Tommy sounding on the radio these days? Such a pleasure to hear him this morning. And if you want to check out any of the tracks that he's been putting on throughout your morn, they're all there on the FBI Radio website, fbiradio.com forward slash playlists and programs. And uh, my guest on Out of the Box today is who I want to be. It's Andrew Denton. <laughs> Andrew has made a life out of asking questions, and lately he's been asking a pretty tough one, which is, why do good people die bad deaths in Australia? Welcome out of the box, Andrew. Thank you very much, and uh, you can be me when I'm finished. <laughs> okay, great. Is that is that going to happen after the show? Uh, this show? A body swap? Uh, well, I might just drop dead, you know. I mean, this is my special subject now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I know you probably can't wait to talk about death, but I feel like we should probably <laughs> have a little bit yeah. of... Yeah. Let's lighten up first. Yeah, exactly. I think what we should do is maybe create a bit of a, a bit of a light, dark sandwich. So we've got the white bread on the outside, and then we'll have a little bit of a, a, little bit of a dark filling in the middle. I like it. So I think what we should do is uh, throw it back to when you were in our target audience <laughs> and hit things off with B-52s. Yeah. Do you want me to explain this? I would love you to. Okay. So, And I preface this by saying the music you're going to hear today isn't necessarily my favourite music, but... Excuses, uh, excuses. No, this is true, because <laughs> the request was songs that uh, mark something in my life. So, I was at uh, university, it wasn't really university, it was called Mitchell College out of Bathurst, and uh, uh, unlike the extremely hot, cut individual you see today, I was, <laughs> I was when I was in your target audience, extremely uh, non-attractive to the opposite sex. Oh, surely not. No, absolutely true. Absolutely. And, but and you had panache, which matters more than uh, conventional good looks. No, right? who knows? Uh, <laughs> anyway, it certainly didn't matter to me because even if someone was interested, I was terrible at picking up the signals. Anyway, I was at, uh, you know, university was mostly about parties. And uh, so I was at a party somewhere out, kind of remember it was somewhere out um, uh, in some little village outside Bathurst. Anyway, and... Um, the B-52s was playing because they were big at the time. The B-52s and Diva, I remember, and Elvis Costello were kind of the soundtrack. Pretty good soundtrack, actually, now I think about it. And clearly alcohol had been involved. And a, <laughs> a, a very attractive blonde girl called Tanya not only kissed me, but it was the first ever time I'd been tongue-kissed. And it was I was like, wow, this is good. This is very good. And uh, the only thing that made it a little unusual is uh, a, a good friend of mine, Simon, uh, her boyfriend was there at that moment. And I, oh. thought, I thought, well, I probably shouldn't read too much into this, but I'll enjoy it. And indeed, there was nothing to read into it, but I enjoyed it. And uh, that, so that song stays with me. Soundtrack to that moment right here. Listen to Andrew Denton on Out of the Box FBI 94.5.
tuned into FBI 94.5. My name's Ash Berdebez and my guest on Out of the Box today is Andrew Denton. And uh, that was a bit of a, a bit of a flashback, a bit of a bit of a smoochy flashback from when you were a young stud. Yes, when I was <laughs> a young stud. Two words never put together in my presence. Uh, but yes, Tanya, if you're listening, is it over? <laughs> I really hope she is listening, though. That would be fantastic. I wonder if she would even remember. I think she must have been completely off a nut. Must be some other Tanya. We're going to take a track in a second from Midnight Oil, and Mm. I wanted to kind of get a little bit of an idea about, you know, the the context in which you're listening to this song, but it kind of it seems to be from that time when you were listening to the B-52s as well. So I've heard word on the street is that, you know, at Charles Sturt Uni, which they now call it, not Mitchell College, yeah Charles Sturt Uni, there's a little bit of graffiti still from you on the campus. Well, not from me, but I organised it. and uh, oh? <laughs> oh, I did. No, it was, it, look, this is the stupidity you get up at, to university, which is why the the government are quite right. Everybody should pay now uh, for the privilege. But uh, in those days, we were paid for the privilege, and so you were the Gough Whitlam years. Yeah, yeah. that I was. I was one of the lucky ones, and uh, so I lived for a time on the residences there, and you know this stupid stuff where we would do raids on each other. Anyway, so I organised the 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 raid of all raids at like two o'clock in the morning with. Possibly hundreds. I can't remember how many of us just attacked this residence with everything, water bombs and stuff. And anyway, we painted uh, graffiti on the roof, uh, which is still there to this day. And what does it say? It just says "Towers Power" because we lived in a place called the Towers. It was it was a it was a pretty potent political statement then as it is now. And uh, um, it's amazing. And you know, I, I achieved so many things at university. Not, but that's all anybody ever mentions to me. Oh, you were responsible for the vandalism. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> oh dear. Well, yeah, it stood the test of time. No one's going to get rid of that because it's part of the uh, lineage. It's, it's notable my, alumni. It's. I've made television shows. I've attempted to, you know, add something to the culture of this country. But that is, in fact, my legacy. <laughs> so you you were originally studying journalism, right? Uh yeah, and I hated it. In fact, yeah. I I proudly failed my journalism course. I got an E because I walked out halfway through the course and I just said to the lecturer, this is so boring. Uh, And I left. So they gave me the lowest possible grade you could get. And I had to go back the next semester and uh, complete it, which I did, but I've just found it dull in the extreme. So I, in fact, ended up doing uh, what was a brand new stream called Theatre Media. And it was so brand new. There were only seven of us. And the guy running it sat us down at the start of the year and said, so... uh, so what do you feel like doing? Wow. It was good. You know, this sounds a lot like something that you did later on with a program called Hungry Beast, maybe my favourite TV show ever made in Australia. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the one about which I feel most proud, actually, even though there are others which might have been more successful in, in a uh, traditional sense. Yeah, how can you quantify that? Yeah, well, well people can and people do, but... Um, <laughs> No, I, it it means a great deal to me, that show. Yeah. So basically, why did you want to get a bunch of young people who hadn't really been, you know, given the reins of a program before? Why did you want to give them the reins? It's so risky to do so. Yeah, and that's what made it so rewarding. Uh, because uh, as a student of, uh, of the ABC, not just somebody that had worked there for many years, but knew its history, uh, I knew that this is what the ABC had done down the years to the great benefit of both the ABC and, and its audience, which is at different times they had handed the reins over to people who probably shouldn't have been given the reins. So when I was uh, in my early teens, the big current affair show on the ABC was called This Day Tonight, and it was both a mixture of really good journalism and some very good piss-taking. 
And when I look back on it, I realized that all those guys were just kind of new and they were given an opportunity. And so I argued to the ABC, well, I pitched to the ABC, I said, I talked about this kind of history and shows like Beatbox and blah, 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 where I started. And I said, you got to do this again. And I, I will find the people, trust me to do it. And uh, it took a bit of persuading, but they, they did. And everything that was it was premised on has paid off in that every one of those people uh, has gone on to and is uh, are going on with uh, really interesting media careers and where they've gone and what they're doing is quite a story in itself. Yeah, and also a lot of stuff that really touches younger people and, you know, explainer yeah. journalism, things that give you context, which I think was completely lacking in the ABC. You tune in yeah. as a as a late teenager, early 20s, and sometimes just be like, wow, I'm so totally out of my depth. Yeah, yeah. And that's... you just tune out again. And it was also because, you know, I'm of the analogue generation it was clear there's been the one of the great revolutions in the history of humankind has been the digital revolution and there was nothing in the abc that represented this in any meaningful way in terms of saying you've come from an entirely different way of looking at and gathering information let's see how you see the world and when they when the the team of 19 first joined and they told one of them told me dan illick told me recently they kind of used to laugh behind their hands a bit when I'd say to them, just be aggressively you. And they, they'd think, what the hell does he mean? <laughs> but what I was actually saying was, uh, don't look at the others in the group. Don't look over your shoulder. Don't look at anyone else. You are here to be you. That's why we selected you. You know, it was there were 1,300 applications. 19 people got the gig. So don't try to be anyone other than you, but be as good at being you as you can be. Maybe you should start a little Etsy store and make signs that say, just be aggressively you. <laughs> I think that they would sell like hotcakes. Yeah, I think uh, uh, sweaters knitted with that uh, <laughs> with that slogan. Beautiful. Now we're going to take a, uh, a track from Midnight Oil now and give me a bit of idea about why this one means something to you now. Well, it was 1983. I had left uni. Uh, I was uh, living out of home for the first time. In fact, I was looking after somebody's house. And it was a hugely political time in that it was uh, uh, the end of the Fraser years. And I have been one of many who were absolutely outraged at the, the way the Whitland government was dismissed and how Fraser had come to power. Uh, it was the height of the Franklin Dam protests, which was really uh, a huge step forward in the Australian conservation movement. People were being arrested uh, down in Tasmania. The Greens basically started The from Greens there. basically. Bob Brown came to prominence, a very impressive man. Bob Hawke... Uh, took the leadership of the Labor Party and became Prime Minister in a remarkable series of political events. And at the same time, uh, Midnight Oil, and in many ways uh, Double J, even though they'd obviously been around a long time, just went boom. And this album, Tender One, was like a clarion call for so many people of my generation because it was it was an overtly political album but also great music. And so all these things coalesced at the time and... Uh, uh, like many, I, I got involved uh, with the Greens. I ended up handing out how to vote cards for Peter Garrett for people for nuclear disarmament. And as it turned out at the time, I was living uh, in Sydney and where I was handing them out was Kirribilli. Huh. And the Governor General who had dismissed, dismissed Gough Whitlam, Sir John Kerr, came to vote. And so he wasn't Governor General then. And I went up to him and I handed him a people for nuclear disarmament how to vote card. And I said, Sir John... I assume you'll be voting for Peter Garrett. And he said, I wouldn't tell anyone how I would vote. And I said, well, I wouldn't have thought you'd pass up another opportunity to shaft the Labor Party. And that was the end of that conversation. All right, that was my little bit, <laughs> my little bit of saying, we remember you, Sir John, and fuck you. <laughs> Young Denton. Yes. What a radical. All oh, right, yes. here we go. Rah. Midnight Oil on FBI 94.5. No, it ain't. No. That didn't work out. 
Sir John never tongue kissed me. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah.
a little bit of Midnight Oil off. It's a remastered version of uh, Essential Oils. How's that for a pun? There you go. Yeah. Good. And so, uh, well, we were talking a little bit about a moment ago about you know Hungry Beast, and you've started. You know, you kind of launched the the Chaser Boys into. Uh, the, the public. Whatever you, they've become. You, you wrought them upon the public. <laughs> yes. And then also grew and transfer. And it seems like you, you've been giving lots of young people who are, you know, comedic and political a, a bit of a platform. So I kind of wanted to ask you, with Better Off Dead, you, you're trying to make a change and you started off with the intention to study journalism and then you kind of ditched it. Yeah. Did, did you feel like you were in it to make change and you just couldn't? Is that why you started off with journalism? Uh, no, no, no. I look. I didn't. I didn't head into journalism with any plan at all. I just ended up there, and uh, so I never saw myself as a journalist. I don't call myself a journalist. Um, uh, one of the delights of my career was the look on the faces in the room of other journalists when Enough Rope won a Walkley Award because <laughs> they were not happy. Um, but having said that, I, I'm married to a journalist. And I have great respect for the really good ones. You know, people like Sarah Ferguson, Chris Masters. Uh, you can't get better than that. But uh, um, but interestingly, when I was making Better Off Dead, uh, I was working with another tremendous journalist as my producer, Bronwyn Reed, and uh, she made the observation that it's a sad truth because we spent 13 months working on this podcast series that uh, uh, in Australia today, with the possible exception of Four Corners, there's very there's almost no way you can think of that would devote that level of time and resources to uh, to really explore an issue, and and that's a loss. So with our next track, um, Paul Kelly, we're going to go into talking a lot about death in the upcoming, um, <laughs> because that's what you've been focusing on for a it's long time. It's my special subject. Oh, yes. I can see your eyes just lighting up. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you why you brought this song on. Well, this song, for reasons I can never fully explain, always makes me teary. And there's something about it, the whole story of the, the little boy being lifted up and over the waves by his dad and the whole cycle, which even though I'm I, I'm not particularly a beachy person, I wasn't equipped with the necessary pectorals to be on a beach, <laughs> um, it speaks to me of the Australian childhood and, and boy's childhood, which is to do with beach and the father figure and, and you know, that describing about uh, fumbling it with the jeans in the backseat of the car. It's, so it's, it's a beautiful little parable to me of Australian manhood in fact. Um, and so this song, I don't know why it affects me emotionally every time, but I have a particular memory of, uh, I grew up in the Blue Mountains and my mum lived and died there. And in her last year, I remember driving up the freeway up towards Penrith. And uh, I, usually I listen to my own music in the car and I had this on and I just turned it right up, just and I was just, I just had tears running down my face. There was something about that sense of the full cycle of life because my mum was in her last year. And you know that thing where sometimes the the richness of being alive is overwhelming and this this the sensory feel of of all the possibilities of life, including death, just crash in on you. Well, that song, this song does it for me and did it for me, particularly in that moment, as I as I knew that I didn't have much time left with my mum. So uh, if anyone passed me uh, near Penrith uh, and noticed that that guy then on the radio just crying for some reason, it wasn't because I was having to play too much Jimmy Barnes. It was because of my mum. On a crowded beach in a distant town. At the height of summer, see a boy of five 
at the water's edge, so nimble and free, jumping over the ripples, looking way out to sea. Now a man comes up from amongst the throng, takes a young boy's hand, and his hand is strong, and the child feels safe, and the child feels brave. I just carried in those arms up and over the waves, deeper water, deeper water, deeper water. It's calling in my
Pokemon Radio right now. My name is Ash Bertabez and I'm joined by Andrew Denton in the studio today. And there was a bit of Paul Kelly there and uh, he did a bit of the music for your podcast, which was, I think, in, in February, it hit number one in the Australian podcast charts yeah, for Better Off Dead. Which uh, kind of surprised me. I don't quite understand how the algorithm gods work, but I'm going with them on this one. <laughs> um, when I was first putting the podcast together, uh, I wrote to Paul because I, I love his song, 48 Angels, and I asked, could I use this? And I said, look, I can't pay you. You know, I'm paying for this out of my own pocket, um, but... And I don't know what, how you feel about a sister dying, so if it's not you, that's fine. And anyway, he came out pretty quickly and said, happy for you to use it, uh, support the idea. And speaking of a sister dying, I've just seen the Australian cricket team at Trent Bridge when they were bowled out for about 11 runs. So that's <laughs> that's very Paul. And it, you know, so typical of him in that he has in so many ways uh, donated what he has, not just to causes, but to individuals. His career is marked by the people he's worked with, not just what he's done himself. Mm-hmm. And speaking of music in the podcast, you've got Paul Kelly, but you've also got some other incredible musicians like Nils Fram, yep. Oliver Arnold's makes yeah. an appearance, um, The National. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'm, uh, as I said at the start, this the music I'm playing, I do like all this music, but right now if you were to be sitting in my office what you would hear is me mostly listening to and Nils Fram and Oliver Arnold so I just I love getting into that kind of mood that they supply yeah you've got to get into our podcast out of the box and listen to the Oliver Arnold's episode we I put together will, then I will have time. to oh gratuitous self-promotion I'll on your own show you. yes. yeah exactly why else do I have this show but for that <laughs> yeah I guess that's right yeah <laughs> So I, I did want to ask you, I mean, you you played the Paul Kelly song because it did bring you back to that moment in, in your mum's last year. Yeah. So what kind of a death did your mother die? It was, a, it was a gentle death. She had emphysema, which is not a good way to go. But the actual dying and, you know, my sisters and I were lucky we were there with both our parents when they died. And her actual dying was was very gentle. It was rain on the roof and she just quietly slipped away. But um, And we were taking it in turns uh, just to be with her around the clock. And I think two nights before she died, um, uh, I said to her, because she was Catholic, though not strongly Catholic, and I said, do you want me to get a priest? And she thought about it and I just so respect this. She said, no, I'm not that much of a hypocrite. And uh, because she was a very lapsed Catholic by that point, I thought that's a brave thing to say. And wow. and she was this tiny woman. Uh, she referred to herself as mad Irish because she had this very strange sense of humour. And unbeknownst to us, when it came to her funeral, she had asked for a particular piece of music to be played as a coffin was carried out. And to this day, I don't know where this thought came from. It was so left of field. So as this tiny woman's coffin was carried out, the Marseillaise was blaring out. Da, 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 da. I thought that style. So that's where you get your panache from. Well, uh, my weirdness comes from both my parents. Okay, okay. And so what do you think is uniquely your your mother that you've carried on into the world? I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say. As I, My mum was mad Irish. She had this strange logic. I remember once I rang her and she said, oh, I've been, why haven't you called? I've, I've been worried about you. And I said, well, if you're worried, why didn't you call me? She said, oh, I was afraid I'd find out. <laughs> It was that kind of a logic. <laughs> so, so when you picture your mum now, do you have a particular picture in your mind when you think back? Of my mum? Yeah. Uh, just of this of this tiny woman with kind of a, a fairly large, a fairly prominent nose who just, she had a great sense of humour about her. And, and also she was, I mean, she, as mothers do with their sons, 
she she loved me and she really worried about me and I think she was I remember the day when um I told her that uh it, it was clear I'd found the right woman in my life which is Jennifer and it was and I think she even admitted to this later that there was that moment that mother's face where it's like I'm so glad my son's found the right person I have to give my son to this other person you know because mothers have a a, a sense of ownership of, over all their children but mm. the mother son and father daughter relationship uh is very complex yeah so the kind of one where she looks in your eyes and she's got a little tear and she goes i really like jennifer <laughs> that's right which is which is way better than uh my older sister who when we announced that jennifer was pregnant looked at me over the family and she said oh my god that's the first time i've thought of my brother as having a cock <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was great. <laughs> and so just for context for anyone who's listening, Jennifer Byrne, Byrne is Jennifer. Uh, prob- she, probably best known as being the narrator from uh, from We Can Be Heroes by Chris Lee. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> Not but, really. No, uh, absolutely. That was one. Uh, she's the host of the book club uh, yep, yep. on the ABC, but also former uh, 60 Minutes uh, Sunday program. She was, I think, the literary editor of The Age when she was 23. She's just this Whoa. ridiculously... Whoa. Ac- she started her professional career as a journalist when she was 17 in the newsroom of the age. And uh, so she really is a journalist mm. and it's hilarious. She's got a Logan, I've got a Walkley and we, you know, it's, there's something wrong with that. Picture. Did you just swap when you got home? Yeah, we, you just, take we, this? we that's that's how we sexually excite each other. We just r- <laughs> rub our awards up and down each other's bodies. Is that too much detail? Yeah. No, no, that's um, that sure. paints a really good picture yeah, of your relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody's ever going to be able to raise that image. So, so yeah, let's, let's stop this kind of erotic tirade. Yes. Um, <laughs> And talk about death, which oh, yeah, is what you're better. here that's for. That's better, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you were, you were saying your mum died a fairly good death, and I yeah. want to actually ask you, because you've been all over the world to make this podcast, mm. and you've been to the Netherlands and Belgium and the US where they've got assisted dying laws in place. Where have you seen or heard of a good death by assisted dying? Well, I got a couple of stories in the Netherlands, but there was, um, I remember the first hours there and, you know, it's a long flight and I was really tired and I'd done a whole series of intense interviews and this doctor I'd spoken to said, you should go and talk to these sisters. And it was like, we were exhausted and I thought, oh, I don't know if I can handle another conversation. Anyway, expecting to meet these sort of somber women with a somber story, I met this beautiful pair of sisters, Marianne and Susan Hoffman who told me about the death of their mother, Gret. And Gret had uh, cancer and uh, she went through the whole process with her family, doctor of 40 years, and, and it was she met what are the very strict criteria of their law and the day was arranged where uh, her doctor of 40 years was going to come to euthanasia. And one of the things that surprised me is he had asked for it to be postponed a few days just so he could collect himself emotionally for the experience. Wow. Because a lot of the criticism made by people at don't really know these laws is, oh, they're just desensitised to this whole thing. I found quite the opposite. Anyway, they described the day where they were the, her, the mum who, uh, in her last weeks, had closed had closed off from the outside world. She'd just often look out the window and uh, she was shutting down everything that, uh, that she didn't need to focus on her inner life and her life with those close to her. So she was in her bed. And she insisted they drink to her. She didn't want to drink, so they all drank a toast to her. And as these sisters told this story, there was they were there was laughter. They were laughing about, you know, their father and and the idiosyncrasies of their family. But they also started crying, and they talked about there are three injections, there are these staged injections, which eventually uh, end 
the life of the the person who was being euthanized and uh, um they said that there was this incredible peace this beautiful peace came over the room they said even the doctor remarked on this extraordinary atmosphere and they I feel quite emotional thinking back on it actually and they said and we we were laughing and they were crying and they said we just know that if our mother was on they used the Dutch word they they said volk volk cloud if our mother was on a cloud right now she would be so proud of us and we know that we did what she wanted and it was I heard that story and I've heard others and I, and I think of the cruel cruel deaths that are happening in this country right now and it's so wrong. We could do that. Yeah, we, we could do that. But, I mean, we've had, had assisted dying laws in the past being brought up and the, the Northern Territory had them for a time and then John mm. Howe took them away. But to an extent, we still actually have assisted dying in Australia. It's just purely illegal. So I was thinking potentially we could play a little bit from one of the later episodes of Better Off Dead. This is for Heather, Heather and her mother. So can you tell us a bit about the mother's situation? Yeah, yeah. Um, Heather's 22. She's a medical student and her father was a doctor and her mother had a, a degenerative neurological disease which had over the course of from when Heather was about 13 to when she was 20, bit by bit just robbed her mother of everything, physically uh, and emotionally, just stripped her. And so this is uh, Heather's experience with her mother in, in the final days. So for the next seven days, I slept on the floor next to her nursing home bed. She became in steadily increasing more pain and um, came to the point where we needed to put in a butterfly clip for morphine. And then, of course, those morphine injections became more and more frequent until in the last few days I had an alarm set on my phone every two hours that was titled morphine. And I would wake up every two hours to my mother screaming in pain and we would rush around finding the one registered nurse in that whole building. She would have to come and bring the morphine. I'd spend 15, 20 minutes trying to soothe my mother, stop her screaming, stop her crying, stop her writhing around while the morphine kicked in. And then she would sort of go slack-jawed for another two hours, moan a lot in her sleep. So I'm not under any um, delusion that she wasn't in pain during her sleep. She certainly was. Um, and then sort of just lie there for the next two hours and wait for it to start again. So that's Heather from the podcast Better Off Dead. Andrew Denton's with me in the studio at the moment. How? What was that interview like? Was that easy for her to say for Heather? No, it was the first time she'd spoken about it uh, at that length and she said to me afterwards that it had really thrown her. Uh, she was very happy she'd done it and she's very focused on uh, seeing that there's a change to the law. Um, from my point of view... I've heard too many of these stories and, uh, you know, the vast majority of Australians will die as they should or will die in ways that uh, they're in control of. But uh, what we're talking about is a small percentage. But maybe the best I've been able to figure it, we might be talking about 3,000 Australians every year who die like that and needlessly die like that because the experience overseas shows good laws can be written to help the few and protect the many. Mm -hmm. And so this is a circumstance where someone's dying in palliative care and palliative care is a Catholic system. Well, no, not you, entirely. Well, not, and, not entirely and look, but... I should preface this by saying, in fact, I had a long talk with a palliative care doctor yesterday and palliative care does a remarkable job for most people um, and they're an important service. But by their own admission, uh, there's a small number of people that are beyond their help. But there are also people that die outside palliative care mm -hmm. who uh, apply to this. And one of the terrible things I discovered in the course of this is that in this country, uh, every week, somewhere between one and two people uh, in the 70s and 80s are killing themselves violently and alone 
because uh, their illnesses and their pain and their suffering, there is no legal way for them to end it. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. And when I hear people say, uh, we can't have these laws, and they always step past the reason why you would have them. I say, and this is why I've done this podcast, because I want people to look squarely at what we're allowing if we don't have these laws. And what we're allowing is the kind of suffering that Heather was describing and the kind of terrible suicides that are happening in our community every week. So what do you mean when people are taking things into their own hands? Are there, are there services for them or are there people who are kind of functioning outside the law to get them to die a, a semi-decent death? No, 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 no. The, the, I'm referring to this as evidence given by the Victorian coroner to an inquiry last year called John Olley, which was corroborated by the South Australian coroner who I interviewed. And he was talking about a very specific group of people, older Victorians in this case, uh, who didn't have mental health problems, came from loving families, um, who had degenerative long-term incurable illnesses some were terminal some were not who um there was no legal way to be assisted to die palliative care wasn't appropriate for them um and so they were choosing to die uh violent deaths they were killing themselves and they were using methods which uh, i won't go into here but they uh they're tragic and and ugly and and what coroner ollie said and this is a coroner and he had to collect himself three times giving evidence to this inquiry. He said, uh, it is clear that these people are screaming for help, but in our society, there's no one to hear the call. We're going to take a track from Sufjan Stevens right now called Death with Dignity. We'll come back in a second, talk a little bit more about the podcast. I'm with Andrew Denton. My name's Ash Bertabez, and here we go. It's Death with Dignity. Nothing to prove. 
crushingly beautiful way to start an album that's stuff jan stevens off carrie and lowell with death with dignity and it's brought in by my guest today andrew denton how'd you come across that song in the weirdest way you'd think i've chosen that because the podcast is about a sister dying but i was in uh louisiana i was spending two weeks traveling around louisiana and east texas the the bible belt and the gum belt with a friend of mine who's a journalist in america and it was a very the whole experience was very weird and i was in one of an endless string of really cheap horrible soul-crushing motels one night when uh, an email arrived from uh, mon shafter one of the hungry beast alumni and uh you know we swapped music and so on and she said oh here's a few songs you might like and the first one was Death with Dignity by Sufjan Stevens. And I, I emailed her back saying, you have no idea uh, how weird it is you should send me this because I was flying on from there to Oregon to do my first interviews for this what became the podcast about a sister dying. It was actually the very start of the process. So it was like, it was like an omen. Wow, she knew she's got, yeah. she's got ESP. And I, I, went, I listened to the song straight away and I thought, oh, Death with, I'll be able to use this. Of course, Sufjan Stevens, the lyrics, I have no idea what they mean. It's a five red hens, nothing to do with my subject. I was I was going to actually bring it back to um, part of the reason that you might have taken to Better Off Dead as a podcast idea. So why did you... You're obsessed with death. It really worries I'm me. so sorry. <laughs> Look, I'm just, I've been feeling really morbid right now. I might have something to do with listening to a podcast about death <sighs> extensively you over the uh, intervening weeks. You need to get out more. Weeks. Look, episode <laughs> 17 is the really funny one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe in it. It's not. So I, I wanted to ask you about your father because mm. your, your, your father's long passed away. Yep. Um, when What year was it, do you reckon? 97. Was it a shock for him? Because he would have been fairly young. He was 67, so mm. he wasn't old. Um, was it a shock for him? I think dying is a shock for everyone, not necessarily that it's, that you're going to die, but my God, it's happening to me now. I guess Um, what I mean is, did he have a plan? Did he have any ideas of how he'd ideally go? uh, Well, he used to joke about it. He used to say that he wanted to die by filling an Olympic-sized swimming pool full of single malt whiskey and just walking into the shallow end and keep walking, which was a pretty good plan. Uh, And it probably would actually kill you. Yeah, well, (laughs) just the expense of it would kill you. Um, (laughs) But no, he'd been sick for a long time, but in the end, you know, this, this terrible medical word everything cascaded so when he fell apart he fell apart quite quickly and and it wasn't pretty so did you get to actually stay with him through that absolutely process? uh again we were all there with him over his dying days and that's that's i didn't know it at the time but that's what led to this podcast because the last three days when he he was given pain relief the 
pain relief that you can still be given today, it didn't relieve the pain. It didn't relieve his, certainly didn't relieve ours watching. And uh, he died a, a painful, painful death. And, and to my mind, completely unnecessarily painful. His last, he, he was dying. His last three days were his dying three days. He needn't have experienced those three days, but under our system, he was forced to. There's a difference between being alive and living. And I feel like if we make that distinction, it's like there's no, there's no chance for living in those three days. No. and uh, He can't it, really be with the family, you know. No, and he wasn't. He was in a coma, but he wasn't unconscious uh, to pain. I mean, you, we could see he was writhing, he was moaning, he was spasming. There was no question what was going on. And, you know, uh, you will often hear, if you want to find out, if you want to know exactly how some doctors, where they come from in this debate, you'll hear them say, we won't kill people, it's just killing people. I always find that word kill. And it's so interesting to me because, in fact, if you pay attention to this, the vast majority of the people to whom these laws apply are dying. And, in fact, most of them, uh, it's their life is only shortened by one or two weeks uh, by taking this medication. Um, they are not being killed. They are not choosing to die. They are dying. What they are choosing is to have some control over how it happens. Mm -hmm. So fast-forwarding through a suffering time. That's right. And, you know, but amazingly, in Oregon where the, um, uh, the law is very specific, you have to have six months or less to live and it has to be a terminal illness. Even there, so by definition, everybody that gets the medication, and by the way, it's a tiny, pitifully tiny number of people. It's less. It's about 0.2% of all the people that die in Oregon every year use this law. But those people are, by definition, dying. Even then, almost 40% of them get the medication but don't take it. Why do you think that is? Because people want to live. Oh. That's the other great lie told about this, that, oh, once you have these laws, there'll just be a stampede of people just wanting to die. Isn't it funny? Do you want to die particularly, Ash? No. Ask me if I want to die. Hey, Andrew, do you want to die? No, I don't, Ash. Do you know anyone that actually really wants to die? Uh, no. No. And there are people who get very depressed and feel that way, and they are treated by psychiatrists and modern medicine. But this law has nothing to do with that, and it pisses me off no end when I hear people say, oh, these people, they don't value their life, they're giving up on life, they're cowards. I've heard all these words used. Mm. And I think one of the things that might have struck you is that, I mean, you know, you're a bit of a mover and a shaker. You can pull some favours. You, you're not a helpless guy. You can access services fairly well. Your father, Kit Denton, he was he was an ABC man back in the day, yeah? Yeah, and he was a, he was a writer. Guy. He was a pretty well-known writer, yep, yeah. Yep, yep. But the thing is, no matter how much you might have connections, you can't actually secure for yourself... No, you can't. A, you, a you, good death. You can't. And the situation we have in Australia today, it's nothing to do with connections. You're playing what I call Dr. Lotto. You may have a great doctor who will humanely assist you, or you may not. You may have a doctor who is so religious that they will uh, not give you even the level of pain relief that you should have. Because, for fear that they hasten. For fear that they'll hasten your death. And, you know, I interviewed a senior uh, doctor, a very senior doctor, uh, who said... Uh, who works in palliative care, who said it didn't doesn't matter what the law says. Even if the law said I could do this, my ethics tell me otherwise. And even though I have no issue with him having uh, his morals, everybody should be allowed to have their morals, I have great issue with his morals superseding the wishes of somebody who is dying and determining their level of treatment. It's about choice. Yeah. So in the aftermath of 
your dad passing away. Did you feel that you kind of had moved on from that and dealt with that and you were okay? Or do you think it affected you having it, seen him like that? It did affect me. I remember, first of all, the actual morning it was uh, Katuma Hospital. It was and that perfect autumn Blue Mountains morning, just piercing blue sky, crisp air, the, the trees turning. I remember walking out of that hospital because we'd been there all night and just being hit with the sense of, oh, my God, he doesn't get any of this anymore. He doesn't get the grass. He doesn't get the sky. He doesn't get the sun. He doesn't get to play anymore. Uh, and then several months later, I, I just got really angry. I wasn't angry because of how he died. I was just angry. Uh, that's how it affected me. I didn't realise. And, uh, uh, you know, I went through, Jennifer and I went through a brief separation because I was just, I needed to get away and be by myself. And, um, uh, you know, uh, when you have someone in your life and someone close to them dies, I think the the time where probably they most need to be taken care of is not immediately afterwards when we do, uh, but it's about six months afterwards when when the emotions settle and, and things come out that maybe you haven't been aware of coming out. Yeah, and you're adjusting to a new reality. That's right, yeah. So in that case, do you know why you were angry? No, I don't. I think I was. It was. it was shock. I don't know what it was. I really don't. I was 37... And uh, I, no, I, I still don't know why I was angry, but that was uh, that was the response that eventually came out. Now, this one is by Chris Isaac, and it's called Wicked Game, and we'll tell you a bit about this one in just a second.
tuned in to Sydney's finest radio station, FBI 94.5. And for the past hour, I've been having 
Andrew Denton on the show. And that was absolutely beautiful. So what was that there? That's David Bridey, uh, who some will know from Not Drowning Waving and My Friend the Chocolate Cake, uh, collaborating with John Phillips. And it's um, an album from, oh, it'll be somewhere back in the 80s called, early 80s, called Projects, which is all kinds of uh, soundtrack music and or music that should have been a soundtrack. And that's called The Farm. And, and why do you want to bring that on? Oh, that's just incredible memories for me because uh, in so – actually, this must have been – yeah. In the mid-'90s, I was doing a twice-a-week live Tonight show on Channel 7, and it was also at the same time my son was born. And I was struggling under the pressure of it, and, in fact, I really had a bit of a, a meltdown just before my son was born and had to take a couple of weeks away. And, of course, when, uh, when Connor was born, you just got to, you know – Get your crap together. Yeah, absolutely. Get your shit <laughs> together. So uh, I would come home from recording the show and I'd get home like at about midnight and, you know, there was all the adrenaline and so on. And there was I, there was this beautiful time where I would do the early morning feed, like one o'clock in the morning. So I would um, – I've always loved ambient music. I've collected it for years and I, I would put on uh, this playlist of music and the farm was one of them. So I'd be walking around with this – newborn little boy feeding him and um, Aww, listening to this music. And it was, you know, uh, it was just, it was so beautiful because, you know, you're one thing in public as whatever, doing this live tonight show. Uh, and it, to me, that was kind of just like noise. It was just that the other me was out there doing that, but the real me was at home doing this. And that was, it was lovely. It was lovely. And no matter how hard you tried to influence Connor's taste in music with some nice ambient music, he did end up doing a radio show uh, he's at doing, Sydney Uni. He's doing hardcore at uh, Surge Radio <laughs> Thursday night, 7pm, take a listen. Uh, but, you know, he's, 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 he's still, he does, he, he likes a bit of ambient as well. Some of, And I, I sat him down the other day when he came home to say, I'm going to be a boring dad, but I you got to look at some prints because he was the best. <laughs> oh, my God, such a dad, such a family man. And the, the song that we listened to before that was uh, Wicked Game by Chris Isaac, and yeah. I wanted to hear your reason for bringing that one on. Well, that really, that just speaks to the the time when Jennifer and I first got together. And this is a story I don't think I've ever told publicly, but, but I like telling it privately, so I'm going to share it with you now. And uh, it's how we met. Uh, there was... Jennifer addressed a rally against Kerry Packer buying Fairfax. And what was extraordinary about that was she worked for Kerry Packer. And I went along, it was at the Opera House, I went along, I was working at the ABC, I, I didn't know her from a bar of soap. And anyway, she came up to me afterwards and said, I've seen your show on the ABC, I really like it, do you want to come along, we're all having a drink at the pub afterwards. So I joined all these journos, had no idea about anything. Anyway, we got talking and I remember... Um, I made some crack about 60 minutes. She was working at it and she, she was really offended. And and, uh, <laughs> and so I went up to her later and I said, oh, sorry about that. And we got talking and there was just this moment, which very rarely happens, where we both stopped and we just looked at each other and there was a complete silence, but it was not uncomfortable. It was just the silence of, hello. <laughs> and what I didn't know was that her husband at the time was sitting right there. They had just separated. I had no, I knew nothing about her. Anyway, um, she was heading off to Adelaide uh, a few days later and I arranged to ring her. And I rang her at about 11 o'clock at night and we spoke for eight hours. And wow. uh, we spoke till the sun came up. And then uh, the next night I rang her and we spoke for six hours. And then she came back to Sydney and uh, it was on. Wow. And, and that song, Wicked Game, is very much a song of that time. 
That's really beautiful, Andrew. Yeah, Thank you, you for go. sharing That's that. That's all right. Aww. Can we get back to death now? Way more yeah, fun. Yeah, totally. Okay, subscribe to Better Off Dead if you haven't already. Lots of really important things you can learn there. But also, I mean, big question. For people who are already pro-assisted dying, they think it should be a thing, is there a benefit in listening to a podcast about assisted dying? Yeah, there is, in that uh, what I've attempted to do with this podcast is inform people because there's so much misinformation that has been uh, allowed to pass in this country. And uh, I want people to understand not just the reality of what happens overseas, which is terribly misrepresented here, but also to understand the emotional reality of what people have been forced to go through. And um, so if you are interested, it's always good to be informed. So when that ignorant bastard at a party or a dinner or whatever says, oh, but they're just killing people, you can gently correct them with that old-fashioned thing called information. Oh, don't you love facts? <laughs> and so I said before that we were going to maybe try and make a bit of a uh, a white bread sandwich with a dark inside yes. out of this show. So we're going to have to end on a, on a nice light track. A good up note, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you usually do that in interviews? Is that something that you've employed when you've got to sort of slip something a little bit difficult into the conversation? Oh, it just depends. Sometimes it's it depends who I'm talking to. If it's, if it's some rascally criminal like Alan Bond, I don't care how badly it ends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our last track, Lively Up Yourself. From Bob Marley Live. Okay, so when I left uni, I did what a lot of people do. I just went backpacking around Asia. I spent about eight months, and uh, and particularly in India, I spent a couple of months in India. Pretty much everywhere I went, it was it was just this was the soundtrack. And I remember arriving at one place in the southern part of India called Kavalam, uh, and the <laughs> there was a lighthouse at the end of the beach, and the rumor was, and apparently it's the rumor everywhere every year that the Rolling Stones were going to come and play there. Which, <laughs> Which actually didn't happen. But I particularly remember, you know, I was traveling third class. I had no money and uh, just arriving at this place on the beach and uh, uh, they made all these beautiful banana pancakes. And it was kind of very hippie. And Bob Marley was just blaring out. So to me, it's the soundtrack of being like 21, first time overseas, just traveling on the literally third class, uh, g- going into toilets to steal their toilet paper, <laughs> kind of going to hotels to steal their uh, toilet paper, that kind of thing. You've scraped the bottom. I have scraped the bottom. I have traveled third class Indian rail, and that's as third class as you Anything's can Anything's going to scrape get. your bottom. It's, it's, well, it's actually standing up. Uh, uh, so anyway, Bob Marley was kind of um, really the soundtrack of that trip, and uh, every time I hear it, I'm suddenly 21 again and, you know, just hot. Wonderful. As Thanks. in sweating. Oh, yeah, just a sexy 21-year-old. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Sexy Denton. You've been on Out of the Box, FBI 94.5. Thanks so much for coming on, Ash, Andrew. Really you. appreciate it. A lot of it. fun. See you. Also, big thanks to Selena for being my creative consultant on this episode. Ooh. Here we are. Lively up yourself. Bob Marley and the Whalers.
Oh, yeah.